in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we'll be finding out about a flexible, wearable biosensor, learning about a long-lost letter from Galileo, and we'll hear about the strange properties of mechanical metamaterials. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. When you're out shopping for a new phone or computer, you're probably not bothered by how bendy the gadgets are. Actually, Sharmini, that's the first thing I look for. I really want a laptop that I can wrap around my neck like some sort of elaborate scarf. Well, I'm not sure about laptops, but people are working on making flexible electronics, mainly for gathering biometric signals from the human body or other weirdly shaped surfaces that require a snug fit. Weirdly shaped surface, snug fit... Still sounds like a laptop slash scarf to me. Yeah, maybe. But a flexible biosensor could be sewn into your clothes or placed directly onto your skin to continuously monitor biometric signals like heartbeat or breathing rate, good for fitness fanatics or for keeping an eye on patients in hospitals. These kind of devices may even be able to record signals from the brain as their sensitivity increases. Yeah, all right, that sounds pretty good. But like all electronics, they require power and Batteries and cables are distinctly unbendy. Now, a paper in Nature has detailed a solar-powered, ultra-thin biosensor, which uses some comparatively retro technology to make it. Fabio Chicoira, an expert in the field of flexible electronics, was impressed with the new paper and has written a News and Views article on the research. Nature's bendiest reporter, Jeff Marsh, gave him a call to hear what makes this new gadget stand out. Well, the difficulty is to combine properties that in general are uh, mutually exclusive. You need to make a material which is elastic, but at the same time it has uh, electrical properties. It's relatively easy to make materials with uh, tailored mechanical properties. It's also not too difficult to have materials which have a high conductivity. So in general, what you do in this case, you try to find a compromise. You cannot have something which is a uh, Uh, 100% elastic, for instance, and uh, with a very high electrical conductivity. So we're here to discuss a new example of these flexible electronics, which powers itself almost like a solar panel, like photovoltaics. Yes, this device integrates sensor with uh, a solar cell. The novelties of this device is that uh, you don't need to power the device, but you can collect directly the energy from the sun. My parents have photovoltaic cells in their garden and they're giant big dark panels pointing towards the sun. How do you fit that onto an ultra-thin film? Well, first of all, uh, the power needed for this sensor is not uh, huge. So you don't need to collect a lot of sunlight. So your surface could be small. And I guess the the devices your parents have are are quite rigid. In this case, you can have something soft because uh, they use a very thin uh, support plastic which looks like the plastic we use for uh, food packaging. So on the top of this plastic they built the solar panel and in this way they could make something that uh, actually could work on uh, even if you replace directly on the skin. People have made flexible solar cells before. How did this team make them so much more efficient? The real novelty of this work is the combination of the solar cell with the sensor. 
and then they achieve the high efficiency of these uh, photovoltaics on plastic by using a particular architecture where they use the zinc oxide layer as the electron transport layer. So they use this zinc oxide electron transport layer on top of the photovoltaics and, and they wanted to achieve a particular pattern so that it could maximise the light that it was exposed to. And and the way that they achieved that was actually really quite original, wasn't it? Because they used a, a DVD almost as a stamp. Can you explain that? Exactly. When the material is, uh, let's say, still soft. So before drying it, you apply this stamp and you get the, the pattern. What is so useful about the, the pattern on the DVD? Why is that a useful stamp? Well, apparently this pattern allows to collect uh, the light under different uh, angles. It's the key for that. By doing this, you can increase the yield of the photovoltaics. And you don't need much light for this sensor, do you? It would, it would operate in, in a room, wouldn't it, with like natural room light? You don't need uh, much light because uh, this device can work uh, at a voltage which is uh, well below one volt. And what can they actually monitor then? Is it just cardiac signals, heartbeat? In this case, they monitor heartbeat. It's probably the easiest possible demonstration, but you can uh, actually monitor any kind of electrical signal coming from the body. So you can uh, record signals from the brain if you have uh, quite high sensitivity, because of course the signal we get on the surface of the brain is, uh, let's say, weaker compared to the heart signal. Or we can also detect signal from the muscles. When I see people running around the park wearing this sort of technology, monitoring their heart rate and whatnot, that, that data is still going somewhere useful, isn't it? Like to their phone or, or whatever. And, and that part, that data storage part, that's still going to require rigid silicon-based technology, isn't it? It could be, but you know, it can also, since you can have these uh, storage devices in very small size now, you can probably also keep them rigid and have, for instance, a system to transmit the data wirelessly from the sensor to the, to the storage unit. So there are different things that can be done. I would not necessarily go to flexible storage devices, but you can have uh, extremely small rigid electronics for storage. So you can just uh, think about the data transmission or, say, data management from the sensor to the storage unit. Probably all the wireless technology to do that, it's, uh, it's already available. It's just a matter of integration. Where do you see this technology going? What can you see its applications being? Well, I see it in, uh, for wearables, for instance, wearable electronics, which could be for, uh, let's say, recreational activity, but also for, uh, for diagnostics. So you can use wearables not only to, to monitor your sport activity, but also to follow activity of patients that have some uh, disease. Then another application could be in uh, implantable devices. It's where probably organic uh, electronic materials can play a role. That was Fabio Chicoira of Polytechnique Montreal talking to Jeff Marsh. You can find Fabio's News and Views article and the original paper by Park et al. at nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up in the show, we'll be learning about a recently rediscovered letter from 1613 that sheds new light on Galileo's heretical ideas. That's coming up in the news chat. Before then, Anna Nagel is here with this week's research highlights. What happens when you give a club drug to a cephalopod? When humans take MDMA, the recreational drug otherwise known as ecstasy, it triggers warm, fuzzy feelings of happiness and empathy. Effects caused by the release of the neurotransmitter serotonin. 
Octopuses have a similar serotonin system to us, but would the drug trigger similar behaviour? When researchers gave five octopuses ecstasy, the animals became markedly more social. They spent more time touching each other and ignored toys that would normally have interested them. The study suggests that serotonin was important in social behaviour in our common ancestor with octopuses, some 500 million years ago. Float on over to that study in Current Biology. Captain, astronomers have discovered Spock's home world. Well, sort of. The exoplanet orbits the primary star of the triple star system, 40 Eridani, precisely the same location as Spock's fictional homeworld, Vulcan, in the Star Trek universe. The planet is eight times heavier than Earth, but has a year lasting just 42 days. The star can be seen with the naked eye and the planet may have an atmosphere. Unfortunately, it's a little too close to its star for life as we know it to prosper. Boldly go and read that study in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. So listeners, for our next story, I'd like to talk about a class of structures called mechanical metamaterials. Now, these are man-made materials, which, not to put too fine a point on it, are a bit weird. They don't behave in the ways that you'd expect regular materials to behave. For instance, they bulge inwards as you compress them instead of bulging outwards like ordinary materials do. Uh, there's an example that was published by another team last year where they compress it and the material twists. This is Corentin Coulet from the University of Amsterdam. Sharp-eared listeners might have heard him on the podcast before, talking about one of his team's previous creations. What we've done in the past, we had the cube and we could uh, arrange the architecture inside the material such that you would push on it and, uh, you know... Uh, pattern would uh, bulge out. This pattern was a smiley face that emerged when the cube was squashed. And there's a video online if you search for nature shape-shifting materials. Now, the key to how mechanical metamaterials work is the way they're designed. Their structures have lots of internal gaps, and it's these gaps and the material's carefully planned geometry that allow for their strange behaviours. Locally, inside the architecture, some parts move, rotate, and this is what allows the functionality of metamaterials in general. Most mechanical metamaterials only have one mode of transformation. You perform an action and you get a result. Take the cube. When you compress it, you only ever get a smiley face, as that's the way it's been designed. However, in a paper in Nature this week, Corentin describes a two-dimensional mechanical metamaterial that is able to achieve multiple shape reconfigurations when compressed. You perform an action and you get two results, one after the other. And this happens in a self-guided way, thanks to the material's design. So basically, we use a flexible material, so uh, rubber, and we create an architecture in that rubber, so we cut it with a water jet cutter, and we give it a precise structure or shape. The structure consists of a series of rigid 5mm diamond shapes, joined together at their points by thin, flexible linkers, and laid down in lines to form a grid pattern. The way this two-dimensional structure is designed means that when compressed, the flexible linkers bend, the diamonds rotate into a different orientation, and the whole shape buckles. For many mechanical metamaterials, this would be it, but not for this one. If you continue to compress it, the structure buckles again. The diamonds move into a second position, and the material goes from an open grid layout into a fully closed pattern with no gaps. But how does it do this? Well, it all comes down to the flexible linkers between the diamonds. The thinner the linker, the more flexible it is. 
This new metamaterial has two groups of linkers, one thinner than the other. When the material is first compressed, the thinnest linkers bend, which leads to the first shape change. When the compression continues, the thicker linkers bend, and we get to the metamaterial's final state. Corentin and his colleagues have also managed to make a metamaterial with three different groups of linkers, and this has three different transformation states. Four, though, is proving a bit trickier due to the difficulty with making even thinner linkers, but it's theoretically possible. There's also a lot to learn in general about how mechanical metamaterials deform and what happens when their rigid parts come into contact inside the structure. This will make designing future metamaterials more of a challenge. We show that you can use contacts inside the structure to achieve this uh, reconfiguration effects, but you know we, we still don't understand uh, how to describe it and be more predictive about this. We know very well how to describe how things buckle, so uh, become unstable, right? But when uh, objects enter into contact, you cannot write equations so easily to describe this, basically. And so this, I think, prevents us to be a bit more predictive uh, and, and use that effect uh, more generally. So what do we do now with these multi-state mechanical metamaterials? This is early work, and Corentin himself says there's no clear killer applications for them just yet. However, a useful feature may be that only one force is required to perform multiple transformations, and that these happen in a self-guided, passive way. These abilities could be used to simplify existing systems that require multiple motors or actuators to achieve the same thing. This could be useful in space or the field of robotics. So people uh, work a lot now in soft robots, and often they use pneumatics to uh, actuate uh, shape changes, control shape changes. Recently, people have started to use metamaterials for soft robots, for instance, for locomotion. And you could use uh, our strategy of uh, internal self-contact and uh, self-guided motions to encode more complex motions and without having to use uh, control. That was Corentin Coulet. You can read his paper over at nature.com and there's a News and Views article about the work too. And listeners, if you want to see the squishy smiley cube, we made a video back in 2016 which you can find over at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Our last segment today is the News Chat and I'm joined here in the studio by Nisha Gained, European Bureau Chief here at Nature. Hi Nisha. Hi Ben. Well our first story today was written by Alison Abbott and this was exclusively reported last week on nature.com slash news and uh, and it revolves around a surprising finding from the Royal Society's archives. Yes, this is a huge story, something that we've been really, really excited about and it's about the discovery of a letter written by Galileo that has been lost in the archives for centuries and now has been refound. And its rediscovery was uh, was quite by chance I understand. Yeah, an Italian historian was uh, doing some research in the Royal Society Library about something else and he happened upon this letter. Now, the reason that it had been overlooked for so long is that it had actually been misdated in the catalogue. But it's a huge, huge deal because it's the first letter in which Galileo set down his famous arguments that the church was wrong about the sun going round the earth. All right, Nisha, well, let's cast our minds back to 1613. Um, What can you tell me about this letter? So the actual contents of this letter and the way that it's written gives historians this amazing insight into what Galileo was doing at the time. Visually, the letter is marked with crossings out and amendments. um, And it shows that Galileo, at the time that the Inquisition was after him for having broadcast these ideas... Galileo went back and changed his heretical ideas so that they appeared a little bit less strong. 
um, and then try to spread this softened version of his ideas to the Vatican. And this is a sort of behaviour that historians might have suspected, but they have never quite known this. And this provides really, really strong evidence that this happened. Okay, so so let me get this straight then. So he's written a letter uh, and uh, and he's sent it out and it's gone to the Vatican and they've said, well, this is outrageous. Uh, he's then doctored his own letter and softened it a bit and sent that to the Vatican and said, no, 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 this is what I really said. That's exactly right, yeah. The reason there's been this confusion among historians is because they knew that this letter existed. They knew that Galileo wrote this letter but two different versions of it survived. One has got this strong language about how the church is wrong and one that isn't quite so bold. But it wasn't clear to historians which one Galileo actually wrote because they had never had a letter that was actually penned by him. Um, So what this discovery now uh, really reveals is that Galileo wrote this strong version and then he doctored it, like you said, uh, to try and effectively dodge the Inquisition. Right. Well, I mean, what does this mean to the kind of history of science as a whole as we know it? So firstly, it's the discovery or the rediscovery of an original document, which is always really, really exciting. And then it's just this insight into Galileo, who was such a huge figure in science and who engaged in this battle with the biggest force in the world at that time, the Roman Catholic Church, which is a story that that all scientists know well and is probably one of science history's most famous story. And the insights that we get into his mind through his words are really, really interesting and and just amazing. He wrote in his letter to a friend that uh, his enemies were being wicked and ignorant. In fact, Galileo himself accused his enemies of doctoring his letter to make it stronger. And it's just remarkable now that we know that he was engaging in a little bit of manipulation. And in fact, he was the one that was editing his own words. So these are just fascinating, fascinating insights into a giant of science history. But I must say, then, Nisha, that his attempts to sort of outfox the Vatican and the Inquisition didn't necessarily go as well as he would have hoped. Exactly. As we know, Galileo was summoned to the Inquisition. He stood trial and he was convicted on vehement suspicion of heresy, and he lived out his final years under house arrest. Right. Well, thank you for that, Nisha. And listeners, I would say if you head over to nature.com slash news, you can see some images of this letter and this kind of amazingly florid handwriting. I thoroughly recommend it. For now, though, we're going to move from looking to the past to looking to the future. And this is a project to help low-income countries gather data about small-scale farms. Yes, this is a lovely big data project from some pretty big names, including the Gates Foundation and the United Nations. They've launched this half a billion dollar effort to help developing countries gather data on what small scale farmers are doing in an effort to fight hunger and promote rural development. This effort is going to run until 2030 and it aims to fill this massive gap about what these types of farmers are doing. There are about 500 million farmers that live in poverty across several nations of the world. And that seems like a super important data set that could help a lot of people. Yeah, so all of these sorts of efforts are in the context of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. And these are these very ambitious targets um, that want to reduce poverty and, and help lives, especially among the world's poorest. And what this sort of data can do is actually help policymakers and investors figure out whether their investments are making a difference and to track how well we're doing 
to reach these goals. Well, let's talk about specifics then. What sort of data is going to be tracked as part of this project? So there's lots of different types of data. It could be anything from the seed varieties that farmers are using to their income to what kind of technology these these farmers use. And this is the kind of data that organisations are severely lacking. Well, Nisha, why is that data sort of lacking then? Most data on agricultural and rural development comes from the Food and Agriculture Organisation and it relies on reporting from individual nations and it's just often incomplete. Even in countries that collect this data really well and that usually comes from censuses, the information might be years or decades out of date and it costs money. It costs money to do these big surveys so this project is trying to fill exactly that gap. Well, if this project is due to run through to 2030, I mean, has anything been done thus far? Yeah, it has. And we've got a really nice example of how this sort of thing can help. Uganda started using a survey designed by the World Bank in 2009. And that survey showed that its small farmers were having trouble accessing veterinary services for their livestock. Now, that data has been fed back into policymakers in the Ugandan government And they are redesigning their programmes for supporting rural farmers so that it's easier for them to get medical care for their animals. Well, that sounds like a really positive step. Yep. It's great that governments and donors are making these really big commitments for the long term because this is exactly the sort of valuable data that we need. Well, thank you, Nisha. We'll keep an eye on that one, certainly. And listeners, if you want to read more about the latest science news, don't forget to head over to nature.com slash news. Well, that's it for this week's show, but we will be back next week with more super science fun times for you all. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time.